Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. A whopping $38 million has been raised to date for the construction of a wildlife corridor over the 101 freeway west of Los Angeles. When completed, the overpass will be the largest in the world, spanning 10 lanes of highway and access roads and connecting the fragmented wildlife habitat around the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. It will benefit all wildlife in Southern California's richly diverse ecosystem, but especially the declining mountain lion population. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. In this, the first in a two-part series, the Traveler's Lynn Riddick talks with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation to dig deep into the life of a mountain lion and find out why fragmented habitats are so destructive to their survival. They'll also discuss the immense outpouring of support for urban wildlife conservation efforts in general and this corridor project in particular. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Western National Parks Association is a nonprofit education partner of the National Park Service. WNPA supports parks across the West, developing products, services, and programs that enhance the visitor experience, understanding, and appreciation of national parks. Learn more at WNPA.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Wildlife has it pretty tough these days. Take the elusive mountain lion, a.k.a. cougar, a.k.a. panther, a.k.a. puma. It faces habitat fragmentation and loss, drought and wildland fires, poisoning, poaching, disease. And if it can survive all of that, it still has highways to cross. Because the mountain lion, as with other wildlife, doesn't understand the human boundaries between wild areas and urban areas. So is there any hope for this beautiful, sleek, and stealthy cat? My guest, Beth Pratt, thinks so. She's California Regional Director for the National Wildlife Federation and leader of the Save LA Cougars campaign. She has worked for some time to protect mountain lions in Southern California, in and around the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, and other protected spaces. She's joining us from her home office near the southwest entrance of Yosemite National Park. Hi, Beth. Welcome to The Traveler. Thanks. It's great to be here, Lynn. Thanks for having me. Well, the National Wildlife Federation recently received a major $25 million grant to construct a massive wildlife corridor over US 101 west of Los Angeles. And I want to get into details about that in a bit. 
But first, let's talk about mountain lions in general. How about an overview of this creature? What are their physical characteristics? Yeah, you know, it, I think mountain lions are just magnificent creatures and that, uh, you know, they are our only big cat left here after the, you know, the last ice ages. Uh, it's America's big cat. Uh, they're solitary creatures. Uh, I think I like them because I'm actually kind of an introvert as well. And they, they like to live alone. They are magnificent hunters as well. They really evolved to take down deer. And, you know, if you just look at their, their, their robust physicality from the big paws to the, the really powerful, you know, musculature that allows them to sort of, you know, taking down a deer isn't easy by hand in some respects. Uh, their teeth even have nerves on them to, so that they can tell when they've sort of hit that kill point on a deer. Um, they have an amazing ability to stay hidden. That's a, they're, one of their nicknames is called Ghost Cat. And that's why very few people see mountain lions. They, uh, you know, P-22, who I, I know we'll probably talk about, the, the famous mountain lion that lives in Griffith Park. Uh, you know, he lives in the middle of Los Angeles. There's 10 million people that visit that park. And, you know, if it wasn't for remote cameras and, and ring uh, doorbell cameras, we, we probably would hardly ever see him. Not too many people actually see him in person. So, uh, you know, mountain lions are survivors. They are just, uh, you know, just to have a big cat like that when so much of the abundance and diversity of wildlife has been lost uh, in America. You think of some of the other predators that have really been hunted uh, to extinction, like wolves in many areas and uh, grizzly bears. The mountain lion, you know, at least on the Western states has, has held on. Um, so I, I think that they're just remarkable creatures for, for that. And that they can hold on in urban areas to me is just magical and, and is a testament to, to their ability to just want to make it. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that in a bit too. I understand mountain lions have the largest geographic range of any native land mammal in the Western Hemisphere. So what does that mean exactly? And, and can they be found in most U.S. states? So, uh, yeah, they're, they're, I think they did. They either had the record or still have it for, you know, where you can find them, uh, like you said, across. I think it was every continent except Antarctica. And I, I probably have this wrong. But yeah, they were at one point, it's, you know, even more widespread, as we know. Um, if you just bring it into the U.S., we've lost them in a lot of places. Uh, so the Eastern Panther and, you know, we talked about this. Uh, it can get a little confusing. Mountain lions have a lot of different names. Uh, I think they hold the record for names for animals. You know, panther, that's a mountain lion. Cougar. Uh, Puma, Catamount, you know, there, there's just so many different uh, names you can call them. We typically, at least in the West here, mountain lion or cougar are, are uh, more typically used. But of course, you know, the Florida panther, that's a mountain lion. They use the term panther. But yeah, they used to be, uh, of course, widespread across the United States. Uh, the Eastern panther was uh, sadly officially declared extinct. Uh, they are obviously holding on in places like Florida many states who used to have them don't. And I think, you know, that to me is a, a tragedy. Um, most, uh, they try, mountain lions do try. Uh, you have mountain lions that have walked from like Colorado to Connecticut, you know, is one of the famous cases. And sadly for a lot of these states, their response when you do have a mountain lion showing up, trying to make new territory is to, you know, either remove it or, or kill it. And, uh, I, I think that's one thing I, I hope we change in these states where, you know, mountain lions don't exist currently or don't exist in, in big numbers. Uh, at, you know, I hope in the future we have them restored to their, their historic range here in the U.S. I hope so, too. So you mentioned the eastern panther. Are there different types, different species of mountain lions in different parts of the country? Or are they all basically the same? Yeah, boy, that that opens a scientific can of worms. I'd say, you know, definitely subspecies, but they're basically the same. I mean, you know, when the Florida panther was on the verge of extinction, they brought in some some mountain lions from Texas to bring in the the new genetic material uh, that they needed. So for the most part, they're compatible. I mean, you could get into the weeds on subspecies and things like that. Um, but they're pretty much all mountain lions um, throughout the U.S. How far can a mountain lion roam in a day? Boy, they travel enormous distances. So this is where, you know, we call uh, the mountain lion America's lion, but there are some both 
biological and behavioral distances between uh, the mountain lion and uh, sort of, you know, if you want to compare it to sort of an African lion. Um, so mountain lions are solitary. You know, they are not like African lions who, you know, have a pride and, um, you know, have a den that they hang out at and then go out on the plains and, and hunt. Um, mountain lions live alone except for when they come together to mate. And even then they're kind of a love them and leave them bunch. Uh, you know, they'll mate for a couple days and then move on. Mountain lions are kind of deadbeat dads. They have no participation in raising their children. It's all up to mom. The only other time you'll see mountain lions together for the most part, there has been some science around with, you know, sort of abundance of prey availability. Are they sometimes sharing males uh, on related mountain lions? So there's some of that, but for the most part, these guys really don't hang out. Uh, uh, but you'll also see a mother with her offspring together and the offspring before they disperse and go out on their own can look as big as her. So sometimes people think they're seeing a, a pack or a pride of mountain lions and it's really just a mother and her young. Um, so for the most part, yeah, they live alone and they don't have sort of a den or a, a place that they stay at. Uh, they have enormous territories, you know, for a male, it can be a hundred to 200 square miles. It's all dependent on prey availability and they will use the entirety of that. So they will kill a deer, uh, usually stay on that deer uh, for about a week and then maybe travel 10, 20 miles uh, to the next male. And then, you know, so they, they, they use the entirety of their range. They, they rove. So, you know, a, a 25 mile journey for a mountain lion in a day would be no big deal. Do females have the same huge range? Uh, a little smaller, uh, but yeah, you know, you're talking 80, a hundred miles. Definitely. They, they rove as well. Uh, when they do have a litter, they will, find a den, but again, it's, it's not always sort of a cave, right? It, it literally could be in some underbrush that's protected for their kittens. So yeah, but they, they rove as well. Yep. Now I understand that California has more mountain lion habitat than any other state. And in fact, more than half the state is prime mountain lion habitat. So what is it about California that offers such hospitable digs? <laughs> You know, I don't know. I hadn't heard that stat. It does. I mean, we are, you know, a huge state, so it wouldn't surprise me that we are the biggest. I guess that makes sense. But but yes, over 50 percent of California is mountain lion habitat. And I think it's just, you know, we're a big state and we have, you know, we, we get knocked a lot for being, you know, 40 million people here. But it's a huge state. We have so much open space here. We probably have more open space than most states as well. So there's a lot of good mountain lion habitat here, even, you know, sort of uh, next to a lot of these uh, big cities and urban centers. But we also have a lot of uh, geographic diversity here, right, that a, lo a lot of other states don't have. We have coastlines, we have deserts, we have mountains, we have, you know, the Central Valley and mountain lions, you know, you talked about at the beginning being one of the widespread land mammals, they can live in a, a wide range of habitats as well. If they have prey, which is at least in California is pretty much deer, they can survive. And that is, you know, whether it's a desert or high in the mountain. We have, you know, I've seen mountain lion tracks at 11,000 feet in Yosemite, and I've seen mountain lion tracks, you know, right on the coast in uh, Malibu. So they are uh, with, with, if there is a prey source, again, deer usually in California, they can, they can survive. So I think that's why you have such a wide range here. The other thing I will say, which is more social than biological, is California is uh, also has special protections for mountain lions that other states don't have. Uh, we love our cats here. Uh, you know, I think that the ethic around wildlife in California is one of the things I love about it. Uh, but the voters in 1990 voted by bond measure to designate mountain lions as a specially protected species here in California. It is illegal to hunt them. So it's also a state where they are specially protected. So that's another reason uh, they are you know, they have a lot of great space to live here is that they, unlike other uh, areas in the U.S., were not hunted to extinction because we prevented that. So there's also this social component of valuing them that allows them to to thrive or at least to uh, to have uh, widespread habitat in California. Yeah, I have two thoughts on 
your comments. So the uh, in 1990, when you said the state of California banned the hunting of mountain lions and established them as a specially protected mammal because of their ecosystem benefits. So I want you to explain those ecosystem benefits for us. Mm-hmm. And I also want to go back to your comment about seeing tracks on the beaches in Malibu. That must have been mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. be pretty, pretty amazing to be on the beach and see a mountain lion walk by. It's amazing. You know, so your first question's interesting to me because, you know, I'm a biologist. I, it's not my day job, but I have a biology field undergrad and I, you know, I'm a scientist, although my day job is executive director. Um, but, you know, ecosystem benefits are important. And I think that all the science in the world is out there on, you know, what happens when the top predator gets pulled out of an ecosystem. We, you know, we look at it with wolves and Yellowstone. Uh, you can look at it with the Eastern Panther interesting case study and so the you know you have the mountain lion has gone extinct from the east coast what do you have there uh overabundance of deer right you have an overpopulation of deer you i mean you're just not even gonna be able to hunt your way out of that problem there's actually scientists calling for the reintroduction of the eastern panther back why well what do you have uh, in the East Coast in abundance, uh, Lyme disease, right, which we know relates to ticks. And so, you know, you we, we know that you you pull anything, not just top predators, you start messing with the balance that, you know, nature has evolved over time. The pandemic being a perfect example, um, that can be detrimental to human health. So I agree with you, there is a real a case scientifically to be made for ecosystem benefits for mountain lions and, and all wildlife. And that is one of the reasons they are protected here. But I, I, I think actually it has more to do here with we value outside of any ecosystem benefit, just the intrinsic value of having mountain lions here on the landscape and that they should exist because they should, because they are a part of, they're a part of us. They are a part of the wild heritage that we treasure. So I think there's also just an intrinsic value that to me pops up a lot more in California. Um, California Fish and Wildlife changed their name from California Fish and Game, I think it was a half a dozen years ago, to recognize that, that we we are really evolving away from, you know, just these animals as being necessary to ecosystem or as game species and in his actual wildlife, as 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 animals, people value in their own right. So I think that's you know that to me is what is exciting here in in California is that we're we're moving towards that. The science is important. Don't get me wrong, but I think the the social value of wildlife is also really exciting to me. And then what was your second question? I'm sorry. <laughs> about, the, about the mountain lion tracks on. Oh yeah, and it wasn't actually on the beach but literally at sea level on the coast there so yeah um but i i listen mountain lions have been on the beach there's no doubt um and that that that's what's wonderful you know the the wildlife corridor i know we're going to talk about that we're building this crossing for that corridor extends to the beach that is you know you literally have the santa monica mountains has been cut off by the 101 and that sort of Santa Monica Mountains area south of the 101 extends all the way down to the Pacific Ocean. Um, And, you know, when you hike like the Backbone Trail in the Santa Monica Mountains, you get incredible views of the Santa Monica, of the Pacific Ocean. It's right there. Um, uh, So the, you know, when we talk about um, looking at corridors and connectivity for wildlife, you know, it really is about connecting these landscapes large scale, which is new. I will say that, you know, national parks, I've worked in national parks for 30 years, most of my career. This crossing is going in a national park. It is the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area. It's a very different national park than like a Yosemite or a Yellowstone where I've worked. It is an urban park. The Kardashians live there. The, you know, it is one of the most densely, po- it is the most densely populated metropolitan area in the country, but there's plenty of open space there. But when we, uh, you know, when I was first coming up in conservation 30 years ago, the, you know, the prevailing view was, well, you just put aside a Yosemite or a, a, a small habitat, you've checked the box, but we now know scientifically that doesn't work. So looking at how you connect these large scale landscapes 
is really important. And that to me is really exciting. We're going to be connecting for these cats and all wildlife, um, a corridor that extends from, you know, the Malibu area in the Pacific Ocean, all the way up to Los Padres National Forest, you know, past the Santa Monica Mountains, past the Simi Hills. Um, you're talking connecting a corridor of, you know, multiple thousands of square miles that they just don't have access to right now. So it's it's pretty exciting stuff. Any idea of how many mountain lions there are in California? And um, they are a, considered a threatened species now. Is that correct? So to your first question, nobody knows how many. Um, most of the estimates for a long time were between four and 6,000. And that was literally based on math, right? So if 50% of California is good wildlife, uh, good mountain lion habitat, and the average home range is, you know, 150 square miles, and we have four to 6,000 mountain lions. Um, there had never been a statewide study. Uh, God, uh, I want to say, um, you know, again, maybe six years ago, I can't remember now, but that the state has hired now. He's a great scientist um, with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife to undertake sort of the statewide study on on mountain lions. Uh, and they've done some sort of based on regional studies about, you know, mountain lions like the Santa Monica Mountains and putting the data together. They're now thinking between 1500 and 5000. Right. So, it, you know, again, nobody still knows for sure, but just based on some additional data, that range has shifted a little bit. And to your question about threatened, yeah. So, you know, when mountain lions were voted to be protected, they were not threatened, uh, at least at that point. Um, they, you know, they were probably, if they hadn't been voted, they probably would, much like other states have been hunted out. But at that point, they were, you know, people voted because they wanted them here. Um, but what we're seeing now, and this again is the result of incredible research like the National Park Service that I work with in the Santa Monica Mountains, we now there know they're one of their biggest threats is this isolation. Okay, so you have like the Santa Monica Mountain population, a, a you know, there's mountain lions there. Uh, there is as many mountain lions as there should be. So at this point, it's not like, oh my God, there's no mountain lions. But what we're seeing is this genetic degradation because they can't move out of their territories because of these freeways. And they are quickly approaching, um, you know, not being able to reproduce. We saw this happen with the Florida Panther. They got down to literally, you know, the last of their kind before they brought in some new mountain lions from Texas to to bring in some new blood because they were not able to reproduce. The genetic uh, had gotten so low. And that's what you're seeing. Like the Santa Monica populations are inbreeding. The, these, they can't get dates outside their family. They're breeding with their daughters and their granddaughters and their great granddaughters. And as the National Park Service predicted with you know, some of the research that came out a few years ago, we don't wanna hit the low bar the Florida Panthers did, which was start reaching birth defects. And what happened last year? we started getting the birth defects. So that in itself doesn't mean they can't breed, but it's it, the next step is literally they become sterile. So that's why now the mountain lions, at least the Southern California population of mountain lions, um, literally running roughly from like Santa Cruz South. Um, you have a population that like Dr. Winston Vickers studies in the Santa Ana's the same thing. They, they're, they're inbreeding themselves out of existence. The mountain, you know, the mountain lions that try to get in to bring new blood usually get killed by cars or, or other things. Um, so they were the center for biological diversity and the mountain lion foundation petitioned California fish and wildlife to uh, put those populations of cougars on the state. We have a state endangered species list here. Um, they forwarded that position and the California Fish and Game Commission, sorry, a lot of agencies here, uh, actually voted unanimously uh, to actually accept that for final consideration. So right now um, they are enjoying the protections until that is finalized either way. Uh, because yeah, these, these mountain lions could go quickly um, if this genetic decline keeps up. You know, I, I look at, I, I point to the monarch butterfly a lot. That's another animal uh, my organization, the National Wildlife Federation works on. And we tend to think a lot, well, okay, we should only be concerned if an animal's endangered. Uh, you know, we should be concerned about all wildlife and the threats to them because look at the monarch butterfly. We once had those in the millions just a few years ago. They, we narrowed down to 2,000 
in the last count in California, like animal, you know, populations, local populations of animals can, you know, get wiped out pretty quickly, especially given all the threats we're throwing at them from habitat loss, development, poisons, you know, climate change, you, you fire, you name it. Um, you know, we need to be concerned. So a long answer to your question. Yeah, they are now in California being uh, under sort of temporary protections for being threatened under the state endangered species act. And um, we will know, I think this year, if that is going to be a final listing. Yeah. You'll have to keep us posted. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I, you know, I, let me just say one more thing on that. I think it is, this is why I, you know, I'm proud to be a Californian and we do some of the most progressive um, protections for native wildlife here that I can find. It is even for California though, us, you know, for the Fish and Game Commission to vote unanimously for considering putting an animal whose territory covers, or at least the populations that are being considered covers almost half the state under ESA protection. That's pretty unprecedented. Um, And I think, again, it's showing that we recognize whether it's for human benefits, we know these ecosystems are related to our own health, or whether it's because we value wildlife. That's a statement. And that is really inspiring. Reproduction. How often do females breed? And what's the typical number of kittens? Yeah. So mutlets don't have a breeding season, uh, unlike some animals. So they can give birth any, any time of year. Females, you know, you're talking two to four is pretty average. Three, you know, is, um, you know, smack dab, obviously in the middle. And the females, the, the kittens, uh, which are adorable, just amazingly cute, blue eyes and spots. Uh, you, you can't go wrong with mountain lion kittens. Um, they will stay with the mother until they're about one to two years old. And then they have to disperse and find their own territory. Again, mountain lions live alone. So, you know, um, when they're teenagers, it's goodbye mom. And they have to sort of strike out on their own and, and find some new territory. So I think, you know, with the good news is, again, they can breed any time of year. So it's not like if they miss, you know, there's challenges around breeding season, that's it. So um, we had in 2020, there wasn't a lot of good news in 2020, as we know, but we did have some great news. The National Park Service found that five different litters of kittens were born that summer in the Santa Monica Mountains. So that was, uh, we called it the summer of kittens. That was pretty cool. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm talking California mountain lions with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation and the Save LA Cougars campaign. I'll be back with more after this short break. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Nova Scotia. 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit novascotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Do you love one-click shopping? With our partner, Interior Federal Credit Union, you can earn rewards just by making online purchases. You're missing out on rewards points if you're not using their Visa credit and or debit card. By adding these cards to your online shopping cart with Amazon, Walmart, or other shopping retailers, you can earn a point for every dollar you spend. Binge watching a lot with streaming services like Netflix and Hulu? Use their card for recurring payments to earn points as well. 
Visit their website, interiorfcu.org, and read their blog for more details and how to apply. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. This is Lynn Riddick, and I'm back with Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation. Going back to the issues of isolation and putting those Mm -hmm. aside, what else is killing the mountain lions in California? Yeah, so, you know, when you look at these human threats, um, there's no doubt loss of habitat is a problem as well. Um, You know, obviously you put developments in, you know, any open space we take away is a threat. There's no doubt. Um, You know, the... Um, so that's that's definitely one. There's developments like organizations like the Center for Biological Diversity have been fighting in Southern California because it could be, again, another death knell for those local populations. And then that just and so on and so on. So loss of habitat, definitely. Um, but when you look at where we do have plenty, you know, good habitat, um, what is taking them out and just looking at the Santa Monica Mountains, for example. So absolutely our roadways, uh, you know, they if you put a mountain lion trying to get across a 10 lane freeway and up against a car at 50 miles, 60 miles an hour, the car is going to win. And um, so our roadways are definitely a huge problem. Uh, And again, something we're trying to address obviously with Liberty Canyon and other crossings across the state. Uh, Another huge problem though is rodenticides. And I will say this is not limited to mountain lions, but since we're talking mountain lions today, um, these poisons, again, even California who um, Governor Newsom just signed a executive order. Was it early this year? Time is kind of meaningless during this pandemic. It's hard to tell. Um, That puts a temporary ban on them because what you're seeing is these these rodenticides are testing in mountain lions all across the state. Um, we've had many deaths in the Santa Monica Mountains from them. And it's just, you know, a mountain lion eating a, you know, a bobcat that ate a rat that was poisoned uh, or a raccoon that ate, you know, some of these poisons or something. And these are terrible deaths, too. They internally, they bleed to death. You have, you know, some of these cats that the National Park Service has tested have like five different poisons in them. So that's another thing that, uh, again, not just to mountain lions, we have to stop poisoning our wildlife. And I think that there are a lot of good alternative solutions that are emerging. There's a lot of good groups like Poison Free Malibu working on solutions. Um, so that's another big threat. I'd also say just depred- you know, people in general. Um, we have had some poaching cases we still need to work on the livestock coexistence. Um, we had a case, was it a couple of years ago now, P56. You know, when you talk about the Santa Monica Mountains population, one of the reasons we're kind of nervous, right, is that right now they're holding their own. But if you get some, and they're able to breed, even though they're, you know, they're inbreeding and the genetics aren't great, but we don't have a lot of cats there. And as we've talked about new cats, it's hard for them to come in because they can't get across the 101. And when you're only talking two to three viable males in the population at any one time, uh, and when you lose some to especially human causes like rodenticides or cars, that could be game over much quicker. If you, what if you lost, you know, um, all the males uh, in in one season? Um, And that almost happened. We had only um, two viable male breeding males or in the Santa Monica Mountains, at least that we knew about, uh, it was a couple of years ago. And this person whose uh, P56 was a mountain lion preying on some sheep got a depredation permit and killed the cat. Uh, She legally was able to do so, but the outrage that was expressed that you could actually put a whole population of mountain lions at risk with somebody not adequately protecting their their livestock um, actually did some good. P56 deaths was not in vain. And this is before they were, it actually, I think, propelled that listing uh, to be, you know, to be considered for finalization. But what it did at the time was really expose a loophole in the California protections, which is, you know, they're not able to be hunted in California, except for if a mountain lion preys on your livestock. And then at that point, you have the right to apply for what we call a depredation permit. 
and you can either kill yourself or hire somebody to kill that mountain lion. But you don't have to prove that you were doing anything to protect your livestock. You literally could tie a goat to a tree. And if the mountain lion killed it, you would still have that right. So it actually had a, a, a change in how depredation permits were issued, too, and that you had to then prove after that that you were doing things to protect your wildlife before you'd be issued one. So I think that was, you know, that's another thing we have to work out is I, I understand the concern if you are your living is dependent on uh, livestock, then, you know, we need to look at how we can coexist. But I think that, you know, the good news is it is easy to coexist. Um, it, it does come with some costs sometimes, but, you know, it really is about enclosing your animals at night, having livestock guard dogs, things like that, that I know there are a lot of resources out there. My own organization actually donated some funds to build a livestock pen. So, you know, we, we really try to put our money where our mouth is too, which is if people are having trouble coexisting, um, how can we connect you with resources so you can? So that that's actually another threat. But I'd say poisons in cars, at least in the Santa Monica Mountains, are two of our biggest, uh, you know, biggest human threats towards mountain lions that we, you know, obviously have to fix. Wildfires, recent ones, especially the Dolan fire in August 2020, did they have an impact on mountain lion populations or habitats? Yeah, this is what's, again, interesting about fire. It's not as sort of cut and dried as you might think, like, oh, it, you know, I mean, mountain lions, like any native California wildlife or, or plant, is adapted to fire. We are a state that has a natural fire cycle, right? But what we're seeing with, you know, I don't even like to call them wildfires. These are human-caused firestorms that are, you know, just made, uh, that are, in an unnatural cycle, whether it is the quantity of fires, the the heat, the uh, you know the acreage burned, um, we are fueling fires that are beyond the natural cycle. Um, for example, sort of up here, the fire cycle differs in different areas, but up here in Yosemite, before you know we sort of screwed up the natural processes, you know you'd have sort of a big you know. Um, what, true wildfire. Um, I think the fire cycle is like 10 to 20 years because, you know, it would have to be started by lightning and the conditions would have to be right. Um, we have them every year. We have two a year. I mean, I've had to evacuate uh, three years in a row for a while. We had the Creek fire, you know, um, last year, which was just, uh, you know, that burned a hundred thousand acres in one day. That is insane. Uh, you know, I couldn't even breathe. So you have these this fire cycle, which is just not even resembling anything wildlife can uh, respond to, that is impacting them in ways that are interesting, especially in these urban areas. So up where I live outside Yosemite National Park, you know, if fire burns uh, an area, um, the mountain lions or other wildlife, at least wildlife that can move, can shift to an area that's not burnt, right? So they can relocate, right? Um, you look at the, the mountain lions in the Santa Monica Mountains after the Wolseley fire, 50% of the open space got burned. They can't relocate in the Kardashians' backyard, right? So you, you have this population living in a densely urbanized area, and they don't have the options that their rural counterparts do. So that's one way fire impacts them in ways that is a little different. The other way is, again, a mountain lion's adaptation to fire is escape, right? So they just move. Um, much like people, you can be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that did happen to, during the Wolseley fire, one of the research, National Park Service research cats, P74, he was at ground zero and likely perished just in the fire. But another research cat showed the impacts of when you combine urbanization and fire, um, which is he survived the fire but was found dead two weeks later with burned paws. And based on the GPS points, at least the sort of hypothesis was he couldn't escape the fire areas because of roads and development. So he was unable to get out because of the urbanization, whereas if it had been like a fire again in an area without that probably would have survived. So that's what we're looking at. We are, you know, the, the Park Service scientists are still looking at the long-term impacts of these fires. 
in some respects, they burn hotter. So the vegetation may not come back the same, right? So what is that? Then if the deer aren't repopulating these areas, then the mountain lions aren't going to be there. So this is sort of the cascading effect that we still don't know all the repercussions of, of this unnatural fire cycle we've introduced. Mountain lions seem to be tracked pretty well in California. How does that work? Who does it? And how many mountain lions are currently sporting radio collars? Uh, there are a variety of research programs going on across the state, and nobody really knows for sure how many mountain lions are in California. These are all based on estimates. And what you have really seen for um, the longest time is you have research efforts, you know, like in the Santa Monica Mountains, uh, you have like the Santa Cruz Puma Project. Dr. Winston Vickers and the Santa Anas. Uh, so you had a lot of, you know, frag, we talk a lot about fragmentation. You had a lot of fragmented research efforts uh, across the state. Um, but what uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife did a few years ago was hire uh, this incredible scientist, Dr. Justin Dellinger, to complete the first sort of statewide assessment of mountain lions and really do sort of a deeper dive and start, you know, sort of looking at how all these research efforts interrelated. And um, it's been eye-opening. Um, one of the things they produced uh, recently was a genetic map of California mountain lions and the the genetic sort of subpopulations. And that told the story that, you know, we're talking about on this call, which is some areas like where I live in the Sierra Nevada, they have a really big swath of genetic diversity, a huge area, uh, lots of genetic swapping for, you know, not any incest. But then you look at these populations that, you know, we are looking at listing as uh, threatened on the state endangered species list. And boy, they are just these little small areas of very small isolated genetic populations that, you know, are really cut off from the rest of the mountain lions in the state. So it's really been fascinating to watch how the statewide study, which is by no means complete, um, both also doing their own study work with the state, but also again, more sort of uh, combining or looking at strategically how all these different research efforts uh, relate. So how many mountain lions are called in California? Boy, I don't know. I mean, I can tell you in the Santa Monica mountains at any one time, they usually have about 10 to 12 cats they are tracking. Since the mountain lion study started, you know, the National Park Service started this study in 2002. Um, they're almost up to a hundred cats that they've been uh, tracking in their study over those uh, 20 years. Uh, now, not all those cats are still with us. Many of them have passed on, but they've tracked uh, almost 100 to date. So it's, uh, it's really a lot of robust research going on, um, but there's still a lot we don't know. Yeah, it's really interesting um, to see the movement of these animals from their radio tracking collars. What surprises you the most when you see the paths documented by the tracking devices? Yeah, you know, technology can be a wonderful thing. And, I, you know, GPS and even camera, you know, all these remote cameras gives us eyes into what animals did in a way we've never had the ability to see before. And, you know, uh, one, uh, this isn't mountain lion related, but, you know, they started tracking Yosemite bears. You know, as you know, I worked in Yosemite for a decade and worked on the bear program early on. And, you know, there was always kind of the assumption that the park's bears stayed in the park. No, these guys are like coming out to my house in Mid Pines and then in a day or traversing the Sierra. And, you know, they'll be in Wawona one day and then eating a, a wildflower and a meadow and mammoth the next day. So it's been fascinating. Like that's just shows you like a great use of GPS to to show that these wildlife perhaps are not behaving in ways we thought they were. Right. <laughs> um, but to mountain lions. Yeah, a few things really, uh, I think, surprise me in what's come out of the GPS. I think um, I wouldn't categorize this as a surprise, but I think it's indicative of the problem in what the Park Service, again, this landmark research they've been doing. You really got to hand it to, to Jeff Sickich and Seth Riley. Again, they're really paving the way on how these large carnivores uh, behave in our urbanized areas. But what their research showed, which was just, you know, at the time, relevatory, um, 
these freeways are absolutely defining their their territories. They are not. You look on these range maps, and the Park Service has you know to date over a hundred thousand GPS points over twenty years. These mountain lion ranges are abnormally small because they can't penetrate the freeway barriers. Again, it's not that there's not plenty of open space on both sides of the freeway, but they can't get across the freeway, and they're just they're bound. They these the the boundaries of their home ranges track with these roads. They just can't penetrate them. So that was really eye-opening, I think, for a lot of us. The other thing their research really showed is even these urbanized cats. So these are cats that live in the most densely populated metropolitan area in the country, the greater Los Angeles area. Again, the Kardashians live there. You know, either the 101 gets 400,000 cars a day. They can't escape people. Yet, the majority of the GPS points, um, I think it's a kilometer. I'm going to get the stat wrong, but you know when they are not traveling and when they don't have to be in you know these human space, real close proximity to human, which is mostly when they're traveling from place to place, they tend to stay away from us. They tend to retreat to areas um, you know further away from us as they can. Like P22, he uh, he's in a lot of people areas, but you know he'll retreat to the furthest reaches of Griffith Park away from us. So even in these urbanized areas, they're really trying to stay away from us as much as possible. That was pretty eye-opening as well. Um, so yeah, the, the GPS and, and again, cameras too, which has been in not just research cameras. I mean, P22 and these other cats are picked up on, you know, ring doorbell cams. And that also tells us and gives us a lot of data, but it really is a great eye into how these cats behave, how they're surviving in these urbanized areas. And as we know, has led to a solution, which is the wildlife crossing. We, we know there's a problem and we now know how to fix it. Yeah. So did I say it wrong when I referred to the collars as a radio tracking collar? Is it, is it more accurate to say GPS tracking? Well, they're, they're both now, uh, at least the ones I know in the Santa Monica mountains they use and, and elsewhere. So both you'll have a GPS unit on it, but in case that fails, they'll also a radio transmission on it so that you can go out and see if you can pick up a radio signal. So, but obviously it's the GPS day to day that is, you know, obviously more useful. Uh, you, you can't always pick up radio signals. You got to find where the cat is. So it's the GPS that is uh, more commonly used. But I've been out with the National Park Service, like if they can't get a GPS signal sometimes, because that can malfunction, they'll go out. Or if the battery has gone dead, you know, they'll go out and do some radio signaling. So it's, it's actually both, at least on the callers they're using. GPS tracking has shown you some interesting paths that these mountain lions are taking and really has highlighted the problem. Yeah, I mean, we we can see what they're facing. I'll, I'll tell you two, I mean, P-22 being, you know, he wasn't uh, GPS monitored when he made his miraculous journey to Griffith Park across two freeways. But, you know, we know from genetic testing where he came from. And I've tell you, I've hiked his route or his likely route, God, almost a dozen times now. I don't know how he made it. Um, but I'll tell you two GPS stories that have been really interesting that shows us that, you know, the interesting is a good word for it or, you know, challenging uh, circumstances they're facing. Um, one of the first, when I started getting involved in this project, you know, the National Park Service study had been going on for a decade before I got involved in helping to build the wildlife crossing. But one of the first cats, uh, you know, we sort of get to know these cats, you know, we even have trading cards we produce for them. And P32 was a cat that, at least when I started getting involved, I remember when he was tagged as a kitten and he did what a good mountain lion should do when he came of age or what mountain lions do, which is he had to strike off on his own. And if you look at the GPS points and plot out his route, he crossed, he crossed the 101, he crossed the 118. He, you know, he, he made the journey mountain lions should do. He traveled a great distance to try to find himself a territory only to get hit on the five. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it was really devastating that that cat did everything he could, but he just could not get over the, you know, monumental barrier of a major freeway. Um, so, you know, journeys like that tell us a lot on how mountain lions are just trying to be mountain lions in these urban landscapes and can't. But it also also points us to, okay, then how do we how do we fix it? Um, another interesting story that GPS and combined with these, uh, you know, security cameras told us is 
Um, there has been a, a mountain lion hanging around, if you know LA, in between the 101 and the 405 around like the Getty. And um, so it hasn't crossed the 101 to get to Griffith Park uh, to where P22 is, but he's been hanging around there for quite some time. And he's uncollared, so he doesn't have a number. He picked up on, you know, remote cameras here or there. But one of the research cats in the Santa Monica Mountain actually crossed the 405 into that area. I forget. I'm, I always get the numbers mixed up. I think it was P61 or, or one of the 60s. And um, he comes across this cat. And again, mountain lions will fight to the death or at least fight over territory. And this got caught both on GPS and on camera. The uncollared cat starts chasing this research cat right back in the direction of the 405. Hmm. And that research cat had a choice of, well, I can try to fight this other cat for territory, but I'm, I'm guessing because he was running away, he probably knew he couldn't win. He wasn't strong enough. Or I keep running in the direction of the freeway and he got killed on the freeway. This whole thing was picked up and it just shows you, you know, how these barriers impact them in other ways. And that both, you know, that research cat probably would have lived in, you know, in a normal scenario for mountain lions you know, they don't always fight to the death. The, you know, the incumbent or the the challenger can be like, this isn't for me and could get away safely. But that shows you, again, GPS and camera technology showed us yet another impact of these freeways that, you know, the, the mountain lions can't even behave like mountain lions without, you know, fatal consequences because of, of the freeway traffic. Next week, I'll continue my conversation with Beth Pratt. We'll talk more about mountain lions, details about funding and building the world's largest wildlife crossing at Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area, and her thoughts about living harmoniously with wildlife that wanders into urban areas. For The Traveler, I'm Lynn Riddick. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Lynn returns with Beth Pratt to continue their discussion concerning the fate of mountain lions in and around Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area in California. If this sort of coverage interests you and is important to you, please consider supporting National Parks Traveler with a tax-deductible donation. The Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that depends greatly on its readers and listeners to support its daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. You can find donate buttons on The Traveler at nationalparkstraveler.org. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.